Section 7 of Mark the Matchboy, or Richard Hunter's Ward, by Horatio Alger, Jr. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tori Falder. Mark the Matchboy, or Richard Hunter's Ward, by Horatio Alger, Jr. Chapter 13, What Befell the Matchboy. During the next three months, Mark made his home at the lodging house. He was easily able to meet the small charges of the lodge for bed and breakfast, and saved up ten dollars besides in the bank. Ben Gibson began to look upon him as quite a capitalist. "'I don't see how you save up so much money, Mark,' he said. "'You don't earn more than half as much as I do.' "'It's because you spend so much, Ben. It costs you considerable for cigars and such things, you know, and then you go to the old Bowery pretty often.' "'A feller must have some fun,' said Ben. "'They've got a tearin' old play at the Bowery now. "'You'd better come tonight.' "'Mark shook his head. "'I feel pretty tired when it comes night,' he said. "'I'd rather stay at home.' "'You ain't so tough as I am,' said Ben. "'No,' said Mark. "'I don't feel very strong. "'I think something's the matter with me.' "'Nothing ain't ever the matter with me,' said Ben complacently. "'But you're a puny little chap. "'That look as if you might blow away some day.' It was now April, and the weather was of that mild character that saps the strength and produces a feeling of weakness and debility. Mark had been exposed during the winter to the severity of stormy weather, and more than once got thoroughly drenched. It was an exposure that Ben would only have laughed at, but Mark was slightly built, without much strength of constitution, and he had been feeling very languid for a few days, so that it was with an effort that he dragged himself round during the day with his little bundle of matches. This conversation with Ben took place in the morning, just as both boys were going to work. They separated at the City Hall Park, Ben finding a customer in front of the Times building, while Mark, after a little deliberation, decided to go on to Pearl Street with his matches. He had visited the offices in most of the lower streets, but this was a new region to him, and he thought he might meet with better success there, so he kept on his way. The warm sun and the sluggish air made his head ache, and he felt little disposition to offer his wares for sale. He called at one or two offices, but effected no sales. At length he reached a large warehouse with these names displayed on the sign over the door, Rockwell and Cooper. This, as the reader will remember, was the establishment in which Richard Hunter, formerly Ragged Dick, was now bookkeeper. At this point a sudden faintness came over Mark, and he sank to the ground insensible. A moment before Richard Hunter handed a couple of letters to the office boy, known to the readers of the earlier volumes in this series as Mickey McGuire, and said, Michael, I should like to have you carry these at once to the post office. On the way, you may stop at Trescott and Wayne's and get this bill cashed, if possible. All right, Mr. Hunter, said Michael respectfully. Richard Hunter and Mickey McGuire had been bootblacks together, and had had more than one contest for the supremacy. They had been sworn enemies, and Mickey had done his utmost to injure Richard, but the latter, by his magnanimity, had finally wholly overcome the antipathy of his former foe, and when opportunity offered, had lifted him to a position in the office where he was himself employed. In return, Mickey had become an enthusiastic admirer of Richard, and so far from taking advantage of their former relations, had voluntarily taken up the habit of addressing him as Mr. Hunter. Michael went out on his errand, but just outside the door came near stepping upon the prostrate form of the little match-boy. "'Get up here,' he said roughly, supposing at first that Mark had thrown himself down out of laziness and gone to sleep. Mark did not answer, and Mickey, bending over, saw his fixed expression in waxen pallor. 
Maybe the little chap's dead, he thought startled, and without more ado took him up in his strong arms and carried him into the counting room. Who have you got there, Michael? asked Richard Hunter, turning round in surprise. A little match boy that was lying just outside the door. He looks as if he might be dead. Richard jumped at once from his stool, and approaching the boy looked earnestly in his face. He has fainted away, he said after a pause. Bring some water, quick. Mickey brought a glass of water, which was thrown into the face of Mark. The match boy gave a little shiver, and opening his eyes, fixed them upon Richard Hunter. Where am I? he asked vacantly. You are with friends, said Richard gently. You are found at our door faint. Do you feel sick? I feel weak, said Mark. Have you been well lately? No, I felt tired and weak. Are you a match boy? Yes. Have you parents living? No, said Mark. Poor fellow, said Richard. I know how to pity you. I have no parents either. But you have got money, said Mark. You don't have to live in the street. I was once a street boy like you. You? repeated the match boy in surprise. Yes, but where do you sleep? At the lodging house. It is a good place. Michael, you had better go to the post office now. Mark looked about him a little anxiously. Where are my matches? he asked. Just outside. I'll get them, said Michael promptly. He brought them in and then departed on his errand. I guess I'd better be going, said Mark, rising feebly. No, said Richard. You are not able. Come here and sit down. You will feel stronger by and by. Did you eat any breakfast this morning? A little, said Mark, but I was not very hungry. Do you think you could eat anything now? Mark shook his head. No, he said, I don't feel hungry. I only feel tired. Would you like to rest? Yes, that's all I want. Come here then, and I will see what I can do for you. Mark followed his new friend into the warehouse, where Richard found a soft bale of cotton and told Mark he might lie down upon it. This the poor boy was glad enough to do. In his weakness he was disposed to sleep and soon closed his eyes in slumber. Several times Richard went out to look at him, but found him dozing and was unwilling to interrupt him. The day wore away and afternoon came. Mark got up from his cotton bale and with unsteady steps came to the door of the counting room. I'm going, he said. Richard turned around. Where are you going? I'm going to the lodge. I think I won't sell any more matches today. I'll take all you've left, said Richard. Don't trouble yourself about them. But you are not going to the lodge. Mark looked at him in surprise. I shall take you home with me tonight, he said. You are not well, and I will look after you. At the lodge there will be a crowd of boys, and the noise will do you harm. You are very kind, said Mark, but I'm afraid I'll trouble you. No, said Richard. I shan't count it a trouble. I was once a poor boy like you, and I found friends. I'll be your friend. Go back and lie down again, and in about an hour I shall be ready to take you with me. It seems strange to Mark to think that there was somebody who proposed to protect and look after him. In many of the offices which he visited he met with rough treatment and was ordered out of the way, as if he were a dog and without human feelings. Many who treated him in this way were really kind-hearted men who had at home children whom they loved, but they appeared to forget that these neglected children of the street had feelings and wants as well as their own, who were tenderly nurtured. They did not remember that they were somebody's children, and that cold and harshness and want were as hard for them to bear as for those in a higher rank of life. But Mark was in that state of weakness when it seemed sweet to throw off all care or thought for the future, and to sink back upon the soft bale with the thought that he had nothing to do but to rest. That boy is going to be sick, thought Richard Hunter to himself. I think he is going to have a fever. It was because of this thought that he decided to carry him home. 
He had a kind heart, and he knew how terrible a thing sickness is to these little street waifs who have no mother or sister to smooth their pillows or cheer them with gentle words. The friendless condition of the little match-boy touched his heart, and he resolved that, as he had the means of taking care of him, he would do so. Michael, he said at the close of business hours, I wish you would call a hack. What, to come here? asked Mickey, surprised. Yes, I am going to take that little boy home with me. I think he is going to be sick, and I am afraid he would have a hard time of it if I sent him back into the street. Bully for you, Mr. Hunter, said Mickey, who, though rough in his outward manners, was yet capable of appreciating kindness in others. There were times, indeed, in the past when he had treated smaller boys brutally, but it was under the influence of passion. He had improved greatly since, and his better nature was beginning to show itself. Mickey went out and soon returned in state inside a hack. He was leaning back, thinking it would be a very good thing if he had a carriage of his own to ride in, but I am afraid that day will never come. Mickey has already turned out much better than was expected, but he is hardly likely to rise much higher than the subordinate position he now occupies. In capacity and education he is far inferior to his old associate Richard Hunter, who is destined to rise much higher than at present. Richard Hunter went to the rear of the warehouse, where Mark still lay on his bail. Come, he said, we'll go home now. Mark rose from his recumbent position and walked to the door. He saw with surprise the carriage, the door of which Mickey McGuire held open. Are we going to ride in that, he asked. Yes, said Richard Hunter, let me help you in. The little match-boy sank back in the soft seat in vague surprise at his good luck. He could not help wondering what Ben Gibson would say if he could see him now. Richard Hunter sat beside him and supported Mark's head. The driver whipped up his horse, and they were speedily on their way up the Bowery to St. Mark's Place. Chapter 14. Richard Hunter's Ward. It was about half-past five o'clock in the afternoon when the carriage containing Richard Hunter and the match-boy stopped in front of his boarding-place in St. Mark's Place. Richard helped the little boy out, saying cheerfully, "'Well, we've got home.' "'Is this where you live?' asked Mark faintly. "'Yes. How do you like it? It's a nice place.' I'm afraid you are taking too much trouble about me. Don't think of that. Come in. Richard had ascended the front steps after paying the hackman, and taking out his night key opened the outside door. Come upstairs, he said. They ascended two flights of stairs, and Richard threw open the door of his room. A fire was already burning in the grate, and it looked bright and cheerful. Do you feel tired? asked Richard. Yes, a little. Then lie right down on the bed. You are hungry, too, are you not? A little. I will have something sent up to you. Just then, Fosdick, who it will be remembered was Richard Hunter's roommate, entered the room. He looked with surprise at Mark and then inquiringly at Richard. It is a little match boy, explained the latter, who fell in a fainting fit in front of our office. I think the poor fellow is going to be sick, so I brought him home and mean to take care of him till he is well. You must let me share the expense, Dick, said Fosdick. No, but I'll let you share the care of him. That will do just as well but I would rather share the expense. He reminds me of the way I was situated when I fell in with you. What is your name? Mark Manton, said the match boy. I've certainly seen him somewhere before, said Fosdick reflectively. His face looks familiar to me. So it does to me. Perhaps I've seen him about the street somewhere. I have it, said Fosdick suddenly. Don't you remember the boy we saw sleeping in the cabin of the Fulton ferry boat? Yes, I think he is the one. Mark, he continued, turning to the match boy, didn't you sleep one night on a Brooklyn ferry boat about three months ago? Yes, said Mark, and did you find anything in your vest pocket in the morning? 
Yes, said the match boy with interest. I found a dollar and didn't know where it came from. Was it you that put it in? He had a hand in it, said Fosdick, pointing with a smile to his roommate. I was very glad to get it, said Mark. I only had eight cents besides, and that gave me enough to buy some matches. That was at the time I ran away. Who did you run away from? From Mother Watson. Mother Watson, repeated Dick. I wonder if I don't know her. She's a very handsome old lady with a fine red complexion, particularly about the nose. Yes, said Mark with a smile. And she takes whiskey when she can get it? Yes. How did you fall in with her? She promised to take care of me when my mother died, but instead of that she wanted me to earn money for her. Yes, she was always a very disinterested old lady, so it appears you didn't like her as a guardian. No. Then suppose you take me. Would you like to be my ward? I think I would, but I don't know what it means, said Mark. It means that I am to look after you, said Dick, just as if I was your uncle or grandfather. You may call me grandfather if you want to. Oh, you're too young, said Mark, amused in spite of his weakness. Then we won't decide just at present about the name. But I forgot all about your being hungry. I'm not very hungry. At any rate, you haven't had anything to eat since morning and need something. I'll go down and see Mrs. Wilson about it. Richard Hunter soon explained matters to Mrs. Wilson, to whom he offered to pay an extra weekly sum for Mark, and arranged that a small single bed should be placed in one corner of the room temporarily in which the match boy should sleep. He speedily reappeared with a bowl of broth, a cup of tea, and some dry toast. The sight of these caused the match boy's eyes to brighten, and he was able to do very good justice to it all. Now, said Richard Hunter, I will call in a doctor and find out what is the matter with my little ward. In the course of the evening, Dr. Pemberton, a young dispensary physician whose acquaintance Richard had casually made, called at his request and looked at the patient. He is not seriously sick, he pronounced. It is chiefly debility that troubles him, brought on probably by exposure and overexertion in this languid spring weather. Then you don't think he's going to have a fever, said Dick. No, not if he remains under your care. Had he continued in the street, I think he would not have escaped one. What shall we do for him? Rest is most important of all. That, with nourishing food and freedom from exposure, will soon bring him round again. He shall have all these. I suppose you know him, as you take so much interest in him. No, I never saw him but once before today, but I am able to befriend him, and he has no other friends. There are not many young men who would take all this trouble about a poor match-boy, said the doctor. It's because they don't know how hard it is to be friendless and neglected, said Dick. I've known that feeling, and it makes me pity those who are in the same condition I once was. I wish there were more like you, Mr. Hunter, said Dr. Pemberton. There would be less suffering in the world. As to our little patient here, I have no doubt he will do well and soon be on his legs again. Indeed, Mark was already looking better and feeling better. The rest which he had obtained during the day and the refreshment he had just taken were precisely what he needed. He soon fell asleep, and Richard and Fosdick, lighting the gas lamp on the center table, sat down to their evening studies. In a few days, Mark was decidedly better, but it was thought best that he should still keep the room. He liked it very well in the evening when Dick and Fosdick were at home, but he felt rather lonesome in the daytime. Richard Hunter thought of this one day and said, Can you read, Mark? Yes, said the match boy. Who taught you? Not Mother Watson, surely. No, she couldn't read herself. It was my mother who taught me. I think I must get you two or three books of stories to read while we are away in the daytime. You are spending too much money for me, Mr. Hunter. Remember, I am your guardian, and it is my duty to take care of you. The next morning on his way downtown, Richard Hunter stepped into a retail bookstore on Broadway. 
As he entered, a boy, if indeed it be allowable to apply such a term to a personage so consequential in his manners, came forward. "'What? Roswell Crawford, are you here?' asked Richard Hunter in surprise. Roswell, who has already been mentioned in this story, and who figured considerably in previous volumes of this series, answered rather stiffly to this salutation. "'Yes,' he said, "'I am here for a short time. I came in to oblige Mr. Baker.' "'You are always very obliging, Roswell,' said Richard good-humouredly. Roswell did not appear to appreciate this compliment. He probably thought it savoured of irony. "'Do you want to buy anything this morning?' he said shortly. "'Yes. I would like to look at some books of fairy stories.' "'For your own reading, I suppose,' said Roswell. "'I may read them, but I'm getting them for my ward.' "'Is he a boot-black?' sneered Roswell, who knew all about Dick's early career. "'No,' said Richard. "'He's a match-boy. "'So if you've got any books that you can warrant to be just the thing for match-boys, "'I should like to see them.' "'We don't have many customers of that class,' said Roswell unpleasantly. "'They generally go to cheaper establishments when they are able to read.' "'Do they?' said Dick. "'I'm glad you've got into a place where you only meet the cream of society.' and Dick glanced significantly at a red-nosed man who came in to buy a couple of sheets of notepaper. Roswell colored. There are some exceptions, he said, and glanced pointedly at Richard Hunter himself. Well, said Dick, after looking over a collection of juvenile books, I'll take these two. He drew out his pocketbook and handed Roswell a ten-dollar bill. Roswell changed it with a feeling of jealousy and envy. He was the son of a gentleman, as he often boasted, but he never had a ten-dollar bill in his pocket. Indeed, he was now working for six dollars a week, and glad to get that after having been out of a situation for several months. Just then, Mr. Gladden, of the large downtown firm of Gladden & Company, came into the store, and seeing Richard, saluted him cordially. "'How are you this morning, Mr. Hunter?' he said. "'Are you on your way downtown?' "'Yes, sir,' said Richard. "'Come with me. We'll take an omnibus together.' And the two walked out of the store in familiar conversation." "'I shouldn't think such a man as Mr. Gladden would notice a low boot-black,' said Roswell bitterly. The rest of the day he was made unhappy by the thought of Dick's prosperity, and his own hard fate in being merely a clerk in a bookstore with a salary of six dollars a week. End of section 7 of Mark the Matchboy, or Richard Hunter's Ward, by Horatio Alger, Jr. Recording by Tory Falder.